You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Joy to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to our sermon text, which is Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. As we've been working through our our time in the book of Revelation, we certainly have seen a number of instances where things have gone from bad to worse, haven't we? In fact, I've heard some people say they can't wait to be out of Revelation because it has so many just sort of frightening and unnerving events laid out for us in the future. And certainly there's few experiences worse than something going from bad to worse. I actually heard a story about a man recently who was getting ready to go on a trip with his wife, and so he's getting the car together and cleaned out and ready to go, and he started his day ready to get the car going and uh, prepared for the trip, and then he slammed his finger in the door. You know, it was one of those slams of the finger that is worse than most. It throbs and throbs and blinds you with pain. Once he finally got over that, he got in the car and uh, went out to, uh, to get it gassed up and to go to the bank to get some money, and then someone pulled out in front of him and ran right into the car and caused a wreck. Things went from bad to worse. After that, while they were waiting for the tow truck for the other person's car, he decided to go over to the ATM and put his card in and get some money out and try to make the most of the situation. And then the tow truck driver came over to him and said, Sir, it looks like your radiator is busted. It's leaked out all over the the ground, and I don't think you're going to be able to drive the car, which he had hoped he could drive it back home. They went over to look at it, and then right then, as they were standing there, the bumper fell off and fell to the ground right in front of them. Things went from bad to worse. After they decided what to do with the car, then he thought, oh, I need to go back over and get that money out of the ATM and found that the ATM, as we know it can do if you leave it for long enough, ate his card. So after that, he had to find a way to get back home, and he was sitting there at the kitchen table when his wife came in. There's no car in the driveway. He's sitting there, thumb aching, no ATM card. Things had gone from bad to worse. That person was my father-in-law. I don't know if I have permission to tell that story or not, uh, but I've told it. We all have instances like that in our lives where things go from bad to worse. One memory I have is actually with Pastor Kevin, I decided that I wanted to buy a small, cheap boat. And so I bought that boat and brought it back to my house, and we decided we would take it out one day. For the first time, it's maiden voyage just to test it out. You know, you buy something on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, you're not sure what you're going to get. And so we had had the boat all ready to go. By we, I mean I. And then we took the boat out, and he backed the truck up, and out the the boat went into the water down to the German village. There was a big sign, probably exaggerated. It said something like 400 feet deep. And the boat floated back, and then we had forgotten to put the plug in the boat. And by we, I mean I. And water started to fill up around my feet, and I'm screaming to Pastor Kevin, come back, come back, come back. He backed the trailer down, and we got it back on the trailer and lifted it up, let the water out, put the plug in, put it back in the water. We pushed off, and just about that time, turned on the depth finder to find that it said zero. And I took a a stick that we had in the boat and stuck it down in the water because it seemed like we weren't going anywhere. Every time I turned on the engine, it would would shoot up all this mud up underneath the boat, and that stick went about a foot down in the water and hit the bottom. It was not 400 feet deep. It was maybe a foot deep. And there we were sitting there trying to figure out what to do while people on kayaks started floating by us. 
Now, eventually they gave us the advice that we were just in the wrong part. And if you can get out into the channel there, you'll be fine. And that's what we did. It's just another example of when things go from bad to worse. You heard earlier, and we need to be praying for them, our mission team coming back from overseas. Their trip went from bad to worse. They spent a night in the airport. They were going to multiple airports trying to find flights. They would get new flights. Those flights somehow weren't properly paid for. They were overbooked. They were stuck again and again. It seemed like they were never going to be able to leave. This is just a normal experience in our lives. We have been considering in the book of Revelation how there are patterns that happen in this fallen world. And that as we see what will happen in the future, those patterns that we experience now will actually intensify and get worse. And so we come to Revelation chapter 13, where it is true, perhaps no more true than here, that things one day are going to get very, very much worse. If we think that things are bad now, they are going to go from bad to worse. This is a passage in Scripture, Revelation 13, that is often held to be one of the more difficult passages in the Bible. It has clear and plain truth, but there are difficult symbols, as in other places of Revelation, to sort out, and that can make it difficult. But nevertheless, we're coming to Revelation 13, which actually is the passage that many people are somewhat interested to get to because we find a character there who is known as the Antichrist. And that's an interesting truth to think that most people, when they think of the book of Revelation, they think about this person, wanting to know who is this person. Now, that is a sad reality, as we've said already, because the book of Revelation is not about the Antichrist. Though it mentions him and mentions other characters, it is a book about Jesus Christ. It is a book about his gospel. It is about his plans, which cannot be thwarted no matter how anti any other Christ may be. He will reign supreme in the end. But nevertheless, we want to see these three truths this morning from Revelation 13, 1 through 10, about the future. And we want to know them so that we can prepare. You may remember from just uh, last week and before that we have seen this scene in which the dragon, the devil himself, has now become enraged because his plan to destroy the man-child that was going to be delivered by the woman has been defeated. And now because of that, and they have escaped, and the plan of God continues on to redeem his people from the world, that now this dragon's focus has shifted to the church in the New Testament age. These future events are hard to understand, but nevertheless, we want to be prepared for them. And we'll do that by considering these three truths about what will happen, ending with the most important truth of all, And that is, what will happen to those who know Jesus Christ, and how will God care for them? But first, the first truth that we're seeing in Revelation 13 about the future is that at a coming day, a time in which we do not know, a blasphemous beast will come to rule. As we come to the beginning of Revelation 13, we're seeing the development, the evolution of Satan's plan that there will be two beasts who arise in the world and fight alongside the dragon. We read in verse 1 about the first of the beasts. The second will come another week. But the first is the, the beast that we'll consider this morning. It's the beast of the sea. There also is the second beast, the beast of the land, that we'll consider next week. But first, notice the first beast. It says in verse 1, The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast 
coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Here's the first beast who is known as the Antichrist. Now, that term Antichrist does not come up in the book of Revelation, but other places in the Bible, and we see that this beast is that person who will rise up and fight alongside the dragon who is the devil. There will be that second beast that we'll cover later, and so what we have here is an interesting demonic reflection of the Trinity. This is a theme that will carry out throughout Revelation 13 and other passages in which the the dragon Satan is mimicking or counterfeiting the reality of who God is and what he does. Joel Beakey points out this demonic reflection of the Trinity because we see just as we know God to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are all united and working together for the redemptive purposes of God, that this dragon sends the first beast, similar to the Father appointing the Son, Then a second beast glorifies the first, like the Spirit glorifies the Son. Here we have a first counterfeit version of God's nature happening in the world. His description paints his character. Notice what it said in verse 1. He saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten crowns, or your Bible might say diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. These beasts, or this beast, is similar to the four beasts in the book of Daniel. If you were to go back to Daniel chapter 7, you would find a similar looking picture in terms of the different aspects of this beast, the seven heads. And this is where symbols get confusing. And it's helpful to think about them some, but we don't want to get caught up and lose the the real emphasis of the book, which is the, the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over the devil and his beasts. But nevertheless, we see these seven heads of this beast, perhaps signaling world empires allied together. It does seem that this antichrist, this first beast, is a kind of political figure that draws people together around the world. He has ten horns and crowns upon his head. Perhaps that's a reference to the authority and political influence of this character in future days. But also it goes on and refers to him as being like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion, All of these obviously would would communicate to any of us who know those animals of the fierceness and the seriousness of this enemy rising up. But perhaps nothing makes this more serious and more dangerous than the reality that the dragon himself, the devil, has given this beast on the earth his power, his throne, his authority, and he has given it to the beast, to the Antichrist. Look at verse 2. The beast I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Again, this first beast seems to be like a political figure whose glory lies in his military power. We'll see later that the second beast is more like a religious prophet, a false prophet who uses signs and wonders to make the world worship the first beast. This beast, of course, is the Antichrist who serves the dragon's purposes in the world. That's what we want to remember at this point in the text. But notice what the clear description ultimately is communicating to us about this beast. It is the term blasphemy. You see this term come up over and over again in this chapter. In fact, in just this text, he is known by his blasphemy. 
Now, blasphemy is a simple word in the Bible that if we boil it down, it means divine slander. It's not God who is divine slandering. It is others slandering God who is divine. Literally, the word is blasphemias, divine slander of God. That's what the beast is known for. Of course, that's what the dragon, Satan, is known for, the very serious insulting of the true God of the universe. It actually reminds me, as our, as our team was going over to, uh, to Turkey, it reminded me of some things I had heard about Turkey and cautions that other teams had had when they were to go there. As the, one was the Article 301 from the Turkish Penal Code, which outlawed something called insulting Turkishness, a very serious crime in Turkey. Three points within that uh, penal code. One, a person who publicly denigrates Turkishness the Republic or the Grand National Assembly of Turkey shall be punishable by imprisonment between six months and three years. A person who publicly denigrates the government of the Republic of Turkey, the judicial institutions of the state, the military or security organizations shall be punishable by imprisonment of between six months and two years. In cases where denigration of Turkishness is committed by a Turkish citizen in another country, the punishment shall be increased by one-third. Even in our world, we know that there is something wrong with insulting authority. This blasphemy of the beast and the dragon knows no bounds in insulting the authority of the true God. He has blasphemous names written on his head. These blasphemous names, we don't know exactly what they are, but they seem to signify this kind of common false worship, common practice among kings. This blasphemous story, though, is similar to Christ. We see continue that, that relationship between the ultimate first beast and Christ himself. Notice the way that we're reading in these first few verses this comparison, this commonality, this counterfeiting of the true God. Notice what it says, both were slain and rise to new life. We read about that in Revelation 13. Both have followers with their names written on their foreheads. Both have horns in Revelation 5, 6 and 13, 1. Both have authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, as we'll see in a moment. Both receive worldwide worship. Both have a final coming or manifestation. The one is to destruction and the other to eternal victory. That is why John Calvin calls the devil God's ape, because he only imitates on earth the work of God in heaven. This is what it means to blaspheme the God of the universe. It is to divinely insult him. It is to insult his character and his work. And what better way to insult him than by mimicking him with an anti-version? We're reading about that this morning, and we want to know and recognize blasphemy when we see it. We want to be prepared for a future day, if we are to endure it, when the devil and his beast will blaspheme God like no other time in history. But we want to take away from this for our own lives, for this present moment, a real concern for our own hearts and our own lips, the kinds of things that we say about God. Because the reality is, that every person in this room blasphemes. 
Every person in this room insults the God of the universe. Sometimes we do it passively by our, our neglect of him or of spending time with him. We don't exalt him the way that we should. Sometimes we do it actually actively. We say things about God which simply are not true in moments of pain and weakness and temptation and struggle. Sometimes we misrepresent him in in very serious ways and therefore we plead with him for grace. When we read this in the text of scripture, it ought to call our hearts to think about the kinds of things that we say about him and that we would apply ourselves in life with this text to do this, the first use of our text, that we commit our tongue to grand expressions of worship, that we, in fact, would become more and more over time anti-blasphemers. We want our lips, the things that we say with our tongue, the words of our hearts, the meditations of our hearts, our thoughts about God, to be gloriously true. We want them to be exalting of him. We want them to be, to be glorifying of him as though we're shining a bright spotlight upon him. This is far different than what the beast will do. The beast will shine a spotlight on a counterfeit version of him. This will characterize the beast or the antichrist's rule over the world. But John doesn't just tell us that he will come and rule. He tells us what his rule will be like. That because of his rule, number two, a blasphemous world will fall in with the beast. You notice as we've been looking at this comparison that, that in these verses we read about one head of the beast has a fatal wound. Look at this in verse three. I saw one of the heads as if it had been fatally wounded and his fatal wound was healed. So here we have in future days this picture of this leader who appears to have been defeated and has had a a mortal wound to his head but then be resurrected again in a way. And that is what will draw the whole world after him to see him as miraculous and mighty and unstoppable. When I read these words, I can't help but think of the the reality, though, of what we read about in Genesis 3.15 as we read about this relationship between Christ, the seed of the woman, and ultimately the serpent who will be defeated, Genesis 3.15 is sometimes called the proto-evangelium. That is the first gospel. That's where we read in Genesis 3.15 about how God in Christ will defeat the works of the devil. But nevertheless, he will do it through the suffering of his son. Listen to these words. It says, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will make men enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant, this descendant who is Christ. He shall bruise you on the head. This is the picture that we read about in Genesis of the crushing of Satan's head, the ultimate defeat. And he shall bruise you on the heel. This is the picture of Jesus in his suffering on the cross. Not a mortal wound from which he will never rise, but one from which he will have resurrection and he will defeat the devil in his work. So here we have this picture of this beast in future days of having a head fatally wounded and yet he appears to have been healed. It's only an appearance though. It's not real victory. It's not real resurrection. It's not real hope. In fact, it's all a 
it's all a ruse. To make the world run after him, it's all a deception because we know what will really happen to the dragon and to his beasts who serve with him. This is a kind of counterfeit death and resurrection. You see how this is happening? You see why the Bible is so clear about testing the spirits, about listening carefully to what is happening in the world, the kind of voices that are speaking to you about your life. You see how there's such a warning not to run after false Christs or to put your hope in other people who promise to be able to save you or help you or to improve your life or to protect your freedom or whatever else the world may provide because hidden within the fallen world is the plan of the devil and hidden in the plan of the devil is an incredible deception but it is one not easily recognized in fact it's not one easily recognized even by Christians because he has a particular way of deceiving, and that is by mimicking the true God, by mimicking Christ. This healing is a kind of false healing, giving false hope to people who think they're seeing it. This is what will happen in the future. That's a frightening reality, and that's why we want to be ready. Again, just as it is true that there are patterns in the world that will be intensified later, here is one because you see this pattern in the world right now. Some picture, some image of false healing so that people will run after some figure who promises to be able to take care of them and to, to shepherd them and to heal their diseases. But no one can do that. No one except Christ Maybe the person that comes most to our minds is the, the, maybe the most recent sort of prominent false prophet, false preacher, Benny Hinn, who has perpetuated hundreds, thousands of false healings in order to make money off of people, in order to dupe them into following him and giving themselves to him. They have found over investigations and looking into these practices, staged healings of people who had already overcome some illness some way. If you ever watch any of the Benny Hinn crusades and you see people coming up on the stage in their wheelchairs or with their walkers and suddenly he slays them in the spirit and they're healed, what you don't know is they have already overcome, normally by natural means, the disability that they had. They're only pretending to be healed. They're only pretending to be slain in the spirit. But you would think that anybody would be able to see through this, wouldn't you? 50 to 60,000 attenders on average. In places around the world where people feel particularly desperate, like in Kenya, they have crusades. Benny Hinn has had crusades where one million people came to be a part of this false healing. It is deceptive, but it is only a pattern of what will intensify later because when the dragon does his work through the beast, people will follow him. The whole world, it seems, will follow him. And they will follow him by doing exactly what he's been doing, by blaspheming and by believing blasphemies Notice what it says in verse 4. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. 
So it seems that in this future day, there will be some political figure that will rise up as a partner with the devil himself and will be his representative on earth, a kind of false Christ. He will appear to have suffered and risen again and shown himself to be sort of glorious, though he's not really glorious. And then the world will worship him. We're talking about a pandemic of false worship. We're not talking about a million people in Kenya. We're not talking about 50 or 60,000 people in a stadium in Tucson. We're talking about the whole world will follow after the beast. Notice what they will say and how they will be deceived. Notice how their words are words that are only proper to be used in reference to the Lord, the true God of the universe, Christ himself, even mimicking the public reading of scripture that you heard earlier this morning, Psalm 113. Notice the similarity between what they say. I'm going to read from Revelation 13 what these worshipers are saying about the Antichrist, and then I'll read for you what the true word of God says about the true Christ. It says that they worship the beast saying, listen, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Those are very similar words to what's said about the Lord himself in Psalm 113. It says, who is like the Lord, our God, who is enthroned on high, who looks far down to the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the garbage heap to seat them with noblemen, with the noblemen of his people. He has the infertile woman live in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. These sound similar. But if you look closely at the difference between them, you'll see that what the people in Revelation are saying when they falsely worship the beast are saying things because he has appealed to their fallen hearts. He is appealing to what they would really like to have in a leader, not what they really need in a shepherd. What do they exalt him for? Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? The beast, in their minds according to what they think is their ultimate need, is a warrior. They think they need a political warrior, a military strategist who will take care of them in the world, who will protect all of their interests and keep them safe in this dangerous world. And that's why they run after him to worship him. But what they've been deceived into seeing is that they actually don't need a military leader. They actually need a shepherd. And that's what the true Lord is in Psalm 113. Listen to the difference between the Antichrist who says, worship me because no one can defeat me. Exalting his his violence, exalting his aggression, being known for his strength to what it says in Psalm 113, who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? What does he do? Is he known simply because he defeats his enemies and that's why his people rejoice in him? No. He looks far down to the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the garbage heap to seat them with noblemen, with the noblemen of his people. He has the infertile woman live in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. What is he known for? He is known for grace. He is known for mercy. 
But the people of the world in the future days will be so deceived that they won't even see their need for a savior. And that is what is tragic about this future time, this pandemic of false worship. The beast also speaks and acts blasphemously, it says, for 42 months or three and a half years of what appears to be in the Bible the the great tribulation. And notice the blasphemies. We read this word over and over and over again. It says, verse 5, a mouth was given to him speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, who dwell in heaven. If we want to be prepared for this future day, here's what we need. We need to get to know Jesus. The only way that you and I would be able to tell the difference in a moment of of sheer terror and the pressing feeling of need upon our lives when the world turns this way is to really know what we need, to know that I do not need a military leader. I do not need a politician. I do not need a president or a king or a prime minister. What do I need? I need a Christ. I need Jesus who will be my shepherd, who will care for me, who will lift me up, who will draw me near. But the only way that we can know that in that day is if we get to know him and love him in this day. We want to, as a church, to get to know Jesus so well and to love him so much that we will never leave him, that we would would never be pulled away by some false promises. But the Bible warns us about that. It says that in those last days, do not listen to them when they say, come out, we have found the Christ. Come out, here he is. Don't listen to them. Rather, know who the Lord is. That's why we want to keep exalting the gospel, keep exalting Christ in our church and in our homes and and in our neighborhoods so that we will be reminded of where our hope really is. You see, but the dragon and the beast, they don't always, they don't just speak against God's people. They also act against God's people. We're coming into one of those passages where we would rather not read it. We're coming to one of those passages where our hearts are often tempted or enticed to find another reading of the Bible, a reading in which we can be assured that we won't have to face any of these hardships. But I don't think that's what we find in the Word of God. And therefore, I want us to be ready as we read this. Because here's the final truth for this morning from Revelation 13, 1 through 10, and it is that true believers will suffer, and yet they will be saved. You see, the beast is not all talk. The beast is not all bark and no bite. This is that part of Revelation that we would rather not think about. Worldwide persecution, like nothing we have ever seen. Notice what it says in verse 7. It was also given to him, not only his authority, not only his mouth to speak arrogant words against God and his people, it was also given to him to make war 
with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, people, language, and nation. For this brief time, the world will be taken over And the devil, with his antichrist, will look throughout the entire world persecuting the saints, bringing them to the point of death and killing them. Worldwide false worship leads to worldwide persecution. Can you imagine for a moment to take one of the historical patterns that we've seen if someone like Hitler could have cast a a kind of supernatural spell over the whole world and could have rallied all of these other figures and leaders together around his plan to exterminate all of the Jews all around the world. And then it didn't happen only in one part of the world, but it happened everywhere. This actually is sort of represented a little in a book called The Man in the High Castle, the TV series that came out of that. It's a similar idea. What would it be like if that were to happen? If the whole world was united around the beast and his blasphemies being Hitler, this will happen in the future. The whole world will unite against the church. Everyone in the world, the Bible says, will worship him. So what is our hope then? This is one of those passages that we'd rather not read because we read about saints being made war with and overcome and the whole world coming out against them. Well, what hope is there? Well, the hope of God's people is actually in a place that we might not look first. Often when we look for hope, we tend to look in the present, right now. What is my hope right now that will take care of this right now? Is there something that I can hold on to right now? And that's good and right, but we have to know what that is. Actually, the hope of God's people in these future days will hearken all the way back to the foundation of the world. We see throughout the Bible this thread or string of God's perfect care. It's the thread that runs from the very beginning to the very end, and that is his sovereign saving providence. That he has never, for one moment in time, ever felt that things were out of control. He has never felt that he was going to lose even one of his people because his thread of sovereign saving care remains secure. It's the thread that holds everything together. Pretty soon as fall comes, I'm going to go to these like cattail things that are growing wild in front of our house and I'm going to take a string and I'm going to string it all around them to pull them up and cut them off so that I can keep them all together. That is what this thread of sovereign saving care is in the Bible. It is God's string to pull all of his people together and to hold them tight no matter what happens that he has ordained in the future in these days. His sovereign saving providence. Our great confidence, our great assurance is not that Jesus Christ came to make salvation possible in the world. Our great confidence and hope is that Jesus came to secure salvation for his people. This is a big important distinction to make if you're going to have the assurance that the Bible intends you to have. It is wrapped up in what God came to do in the work of Christ. Again, he did not come to make salvation possible as though he lives, dies, rises again, and then tells the whole world, if you want to come, you can come, though that is part of our message. 
He doesn't come and say, now salvation is possible. But rather he comes and he secures. Why? Because if he came and he made salvation possible, if he came into a world like this, even a world that is to come like this, and made salvation possible, who would come? No one would come. No one would be saved. But what has he done? He, with his sovereign saving providence has secured salvation for his people. And that is their confidence. Notice what it says. You see it very clearly. These words ought to ring with truth and assurance and hope for us as we look forward to a future day if we are to face it. All who live on the earth will worship him, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered. Jesus has a book. This is amazing. Jesus has a book full of names. And they're names that were written down not over the course of time of history, but before the beginning of history at the foundation of the world. This is where we hear about what we sort of systematize into the headings of the doctrines of election and predestination. It is one, God's choosing to save and secure salvation for his people, and then his ordaining of the means of salvation with certainty. He will carry his people through to the very end. He has secured salvation for you. That's our hope. Now, if you were to carry that truth in your heart and you were to feed upon that all the time, knowing that you are saved, you will be saved until the very end. Not because of anything that you did, not because you wrote something down, but because God wrote something down. You wouldn't have to dread the chapters of Revelation. You can look forward to them because you know what your destiny is. You know that even if the worst of all scenarios you can imagine comes true, that they make war with you and the saints and overcome you, that you will be with him. These are comforting, comforting truths, both of them. God's choosing to save and God's ordaining all of the means necessary in order to save you to the very end are comforting truths. I want to give you just two words from the voice of Charles Spurgeon on these very things. What he says about how helpful these truths are to our hearts, listen to this. He says, do not be afraid to dwell upon this high doctrine of election. When your mind is most heavy and depressed, you will find it to be a bottle of richest cordial. Those who doubt the doctrines of grace or cast them into the shade miss the richest clusters of Eskol. Those are the, the fruits of the promised land. They lose the wines on the lees well refined, the fat things full of marrow. There is no balm in Gilead compared to it. To know that you are saved because God has secured your salvation. But here's the second. The second word from Spurgeon about this providence by which God ensures that he'll lose not one of us if we truly know him. He says, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. That means that God is in control. 
under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and sovereignty will sanctify them all. That is our glorious hope in Christ because we know the true Savior of the world and he is our shepherd. This is an incredible mystery. This is an incredible reality. Even just to look once more at this book, everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world, listen to this, in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered, the book of life of God's people is sealed with the blood of God's Son. The fact that our names are written in that book is one thing, but I've read a lot of books that didn't come true. But this one will come true, and it will come true because Jesus Christ has done all to ensure it with his own blood. Therefore, the final use of our text this morning is that we want to make this eternal covenant of the love of God our string, to make it our theme. Is that the theme of your life today? If you're like me, you probably find that you trade in and out themes or strings in your life. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is the theme that runs throughout from beginning to end of a season, a week, a moment of your life. Other times, some other thread has taken over. It might be the thread of anxiety or fear or doubts that God really loves you. It might be the theme or the thread that he, maybe he's not really in control. Maybe he really won't see me through to the end. Well, these sure are scary things I'm reading about in the future days in the book of Revelation. Maybe he won't. We have a constant call back to keep the eternal covenant of God's love for us fresh in our hearts, to make it our string that ties up everything in our lives that runs from beginning to end, but that's an intentional purpose of ours. That's something we're going to have to work at together. We're going to have to keep rehearsing this good news of Christ. We're going to have to keep looking even into the difficult doctrines of the Word of God so that we'll be reminded of why and how we are saved. Of course, that begins with coming to Christ. And so we want to make the gospel known everywhere that we can. If you're with us this morning or you're on the live stream, we want this to be the day of your salvation. We want you to hear about Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again for sinners like us. And that if we will come to him and trust in him by faith alone to belong to him, we will be saved. You will be saved. And then you can join the people of God continuing to walk forward and gaining strength around this incredible covenant of love that he has made with us and for us. That's our hope. If that's you, we want to talk to you. We want to pray for you. We want to walk with you. You need Christ as much as we do. Before we stand and sing, I want to leave you with a few words from a hymn writer named William Cooper. In fact, we're going to sing in just a moment a hymn that he wrote called There is a Fountain. But it is in one of these stanzas of the hymn, this truth about the thread that William Cooper knew about. William Cooper lived a difficult, difficult life full of affliction and challenge. And notice what he continually sang and reminds us to sing in these words. He says, Ere since my faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme. 
and shall be until I die. And shall be till I die, and shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. Let's stand and pray and ask God to make it so, and that it shall be until we die. Our Father, we come to you rejoicing because of your great love for us. You have left nothing to chance. You have secured us. You will keep us to the end as we stay in you by your grace. Oh God, we pray that you would help us. Help us to continue loving you, to continue knowing you deeper and deeper, that we would continue looking into your word so that we could have new and fresh assurances of your faithfulness to us. And God, we pray that your redeeming love would be our theme that it would ever be playing in the background of our hearts and minds. We know that it is playing in the background of our lives because of you, because you continue to play it. We pray that you give us ears to hear it so that we can continue to sing with you about your redeeming love as we do now. And we pray that as a result of this, we would be more useful to you in the world, that our trust would be greater, that we would see through all of the trouble and difficulty, even the deceptions of today or the deceptions that are coming and that we would keep our eyes on you, the true Christ, the one in whom we have trusted, and the one who will take us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.